All right, and we're going to start with a PSA this morning, a public service announcement. I don't know, did you guys hear anything about, like, there might be a virus going around or something? Anybody heard anything about this this week? Um, here's what we know about coronavirus. John, who was one of Jesus' disciples, John knew Jesus really well. He referred, to him as the, he referred to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. John, who sat with Jesus at the Last Supper. John, who hung out with Jesus post-resurrection. John said this, perfect love casts out fear. You are loved perfectly by God through Jesus Christ. Rest. The, this week, the words of FDR took on new meaning for me. Certainly, I understood them before, but I never quite got it like this. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. In fact, the most common saying of Jesus, and now I understand why, as he ministered, had to do with fear. He would say quite often, do not be afraid. And this week, I think we've begun to see why. Because fear has very real impacts, significant and serious impacts. Perspective, okay? I, I, I've been here all day, so I don't know what's happening right now. But to, to the best of my knowledge, this morning when I checked, coronavirus had impacted four people in New Jersey. Four there are 9 million people in the state of New Jersey. The reality is, coronavirus is a virus. It will spread. And as a community, we have a responsibility to ensure, as best we can, the safety of everybody here. Towards that end, beginning today and then expanding next Sunday, we're going to put into place some practices and procedures to do our very best to limit it, its potential spread. For example, this morning when your kids were checked into Sunday school, each of their hands were sanitized. Each children's ministry worker was fully Lysol down prior to be putting upstairs today. Some of them fought it. But they smell very clean. At the welcome station this morning is hand sanitizer that we are selling for $100 a bottle. All, all proceeds will go to fund the ministry. Just joking about that. Uh, there is hand sanitizer at the Welcome Center this morning, which is true. We have ordered hand sanitizing stations, which will be mounted around the church. Uh, they'll be coming this week. I'm going to send you all an email with more details about how we're handling this this week. Here's what I also need you to know. We need to balance this, right? Because the writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament commands us this. Commands us this. Don't stop meeting together. This gathering is important, and I want to encourage you to prioritize it. Yet, for those who, who might deem themselves part of the, the at-risk population, and if the virus manifests, be aware that there, there are options. We will continue to broadcast both of our services live via Facebook on our Facebook page. Can I encourage you that if this happens and we wind up having to have more and more folks kind of not part of the gathering until this, this passes, if you're on Facebook, engage on Facebook. Start to create a little bit of an online community. Greet one another out on, 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 under the, the video. Encourage one another. And of course, as, as the virus spreads, it's going to be crucial for our community uh, to continue to meet our financial obligations. Obviously, you know, I, you don't want to bring up money when something like this happens, but money is a reality of the situation we find ourselves in. Our community, this community, will have increasing financial needs and burdens if this goes as it might go. So I want to encourage you to continue to, to, to be sacrificial in your giving, and you can do that online. PSA over. I don't want to talk about coronavirus anymore. 
But this is a perfect segue into this morning's discussion because we're in a new series called God Never Said That. Believe it or not, God never mentioned coronavirus, but there are TV preachers who will get you to believe he did. We're looking at cultural wisdom, societal sayings, and half-truths that have found their way into our nomenclature, and these sayings then kind of take root and take hold, and then they get attributed to God. Lots of, of us think these things are in the Bible, and some of them have some truth to them, and they sound good, yet there's a reason God never specifically said that. Last week, we looked at love the sinner, hate the sin. This was very challenging for me this morning, because as I pulled into church, somebody that was behind me did not like the way I was pulling into church, so they pulled up beside me and violently gave me the one-finger salute as I pulled into church. I said, man, I love you and hate your sin. So you can check that one out. God never said that either, by the way. You can check that out. That's online. This week, we're going to look at another one, and it's a difficult one. And this might be more of a, I don't know, a thinking man's talk than, than usual, but theological in nature. But we're going to look at one that I think it's important because as, as somebody that speaks for God sometimes, and I, I want to try, when I, when I do that, I want to try to be very careful. Um, this one bothers me. Uh, it's everything happens for a reason. Now, is that true? Well, of course, in many ways it is true. We live in a cause and effect world, right? Actions, as we all know, have consequences. I pulled out in front of a guy, I experienced a consequence. <laughs> Yet, everything happens for a reason isn't often used in that respect. In some sense, we're caught between two conclusions here about how life plays out. Uh, they're, they're captured in a couple of memes I want to show you. The first one is, because this is such a saying, right? Everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. And as I often say, whenever we find a saying that we think is in the Bible, for some reason we love to crochet it on things. And so this grandmother, I love the way this grandmother thought. She sat down to put this on here, but here's what she, she crocheted. Everything happens for a reason. Sometimes that reason is you're stupid and you make bad choices. <laughs> That, ladies and gentlemen, is telling it like it is. So that's one extreme, right? And then there's another extreme in regards to this half-truth, I guess I might call it. And it's, it's, it's uttered by my favorite oracle, Dwight Schrute. Everything happens for a reason. False. Nature is inherently random. You got to hear picture Dwight saying it if you don't. So which is it? My friend, a couple years ago, lost his 17-year-old son in a terrible car accident. Um, many of you know him. And uh, I was called coming home from vacation. I was actually driving home, and he called, and I uh, went right over to his house, and I was with him that day, and I was with him the next day, and at one point, the house was full of people, and I could tell he was just dying to get out of there. And uh, so I said, let's go out, and we went to, uh, to a local, uh, well, we went to a local bar, but don't tell anybody. And, uh, <laughs> So we're sitting at the bar, and uh, the, the, the bartender knew who he was and what had happened. And so she came up, and she said, you know, um, it's one thing when this happens when, you know, to, to somebody that's older. It's another thing when it happens when you're 17. And I remember thinking to myself, really? Because I think death is always tragic. It's never, it's never what God's ultimate will for any of us was. 
we're just used to it happening when people are old. We've just grown used to it. It's always horrible and tragic. And so what I experienced being in his house for those couple days was people saying one way of this saying or another. And, and it just started to bother me a little bit. See, I think, I think we use everything happens for a reason, kind of in the same way that bartender was using that saying to my friend. We're not, when we say everything happens for a reason, we're not talking about cause and effect. Most often we're speaking in response to something bad that happened. When something bad has happened, when we're trying to help somebody through a difficult time, we'll say things like, it was meant to be. Um, when someone dies unexpectedly, we hear, well, it must have been uh, his time, or it was all part of the plan, or it must have been God's will, or God just got another angel. That's not in there either, just as a heads up. Maybe we'll get to that either. God's not turning people into angels. But we do this. We say this because we, we don't know. Well, oftentimes we don't know what to say, and we think it'll be comforting. And so we use this to console uh, ourselves and others. By say, we're trying to say God has a particular purpose for bringing about situations, especially in situations where people suffer. We may assume that while we don't yet understand why it had to happen, all events in our lives unfold according to God's predetermined and immutable plan. And since God is in charge of everything, which he is, Whatever happens, a personal setback, an untimely death, a natural disaster, that reflects the will and the purposes of God. However, you got to think today, okay? If we extend this logic, we can arrive at a couple of different kinds of conclusions. Some of them are silly. For example, in my life, if I were to extend this, I would have to assume then that God must want every sports team I've ever loved or rooted for to lose. God hates the New York Mets. And I think many of you probably would agree that that's probably true. Don't applaud that to somebody. This is our year, by the way, but that's a talk for another day. Or, honey, I'm so sorry I forgot our anniversary. It must have been the will of God. Now, those are funny. But if you keep going down the rabbit hole, you can wind up with some pretty scary conclusions. Did God cause the coronavirus? Well, it must have been God's will. We needed to thin the herd. 9-11? The Holocaust? My friend's son's car accident? Was that what he wanted? Was that God? Well, you know, what are you going to do? It's what God wanted. He wanted... Does everything happen for a reason? It's not a simple answer. Because at one level, it does. Let me explain what I mean. At one level, everything does happen for a reason. We live in a fallen and broken world, and it's filled up with people like you and me, fallen and broken people. And we do, sometimes we are stupid and make bad choices. And the reason lots of bad stuff happens in this world is not because God wants it to. It's because it is the current state that we find ourselves in. This is not the state God originally willed. The Apostle Paul, who's one of the first persecutors of the early church, he actually participated in the first martyring of a Christian. Paul, who tried to stamp out Jesus' church, later on meets the resurrected Jesus as he's traveling on a road to a city called Damascus. And if you ever want to kind of get into why we should believe the Bible, remember, Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, was the church's first great persecutor. Something happened, which we believe is that he met the resurrected Jesus. That's what Paul said happened. And Paul becomes the church's greatest evangelist. 
And it was to a church in Rome that was trying to figure this out just like we are that Paul wrote this to explain our situation. He said, for the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. If you are familiar with frustration in this life, this is why we are now subjects to frustration and decay. I got up this morning, I looked in the mirror, and I thought to myself, subject to decay. I've lost control. <laughs> the creation, and <laughs> that could have been the voice of God. But we, <laughs> the creation that we are part of, the creation that we find, the creation that we, we live on, that we are, we are subject to frustration and we remain today in bondage to decay. This is why accidents happen. This is why we die. It was part of the fall of man. And what Paul is saying is that God is using this frustration and our bondage to lead us back to him. There is a new day coming. And John, who, this John I described to you earlier, John would call this day a new heaven and a new earth. You know there's going to be a Chester, New Jersey, believe it or not, in heaven. I mean, I'm going to probably choose the Caribbean, but there, if you want to be here, there'll still there'll be a new Chester. And we will no longer be frustrated. There will be no, no more death or dying or pain or tears. Paul wrote, though, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to this time in anticipation of that time, that day to come, but in the interim. We are subject to frustration. The better day is coming. But for now, God is using our choices, our choice, man's original choice, to turn away from him, ultimately to lead us back to him. But no, most, no one ever says everything happens for a reason and says, well, everything happens for a reason because we live in a broken world and we've turned our back from God and we... Nobody ever says that. They don't talk about personal brokenness. In fact, here's the truth. Extended to its ultimate ends, everything happens for a reason can be used to excuse our brokenness. I mean, if everything happens for a reason, the first thing that happens is we excuse ourselves from personal responsibility. If everything happens according to God's immutable plan, then whatever I do must have been God's will. God isn't going to change it. In fact, God must have needed and wanted me to do it. Otherwise, God wouldn't have let it happen. Adam Hamilton, an author, put it this way. He said, if I cheat on my wife, it must have been part of God's plan. What am I going to do, honey? If my wife and children suffer because of my cheating, that was God's will for them. Even if they can't fathom why God ordained it to happen. If I drink and drive and someone's killed as, my, as a result, well, it must have been their time. Yes, I did a terrible thing, but the devil didn't make me do it. Instead, God used me to accomplish his greater purpose. I can't be held responsible for my actions. I was only doing what God willed me to do. And of course, it can go further. 
Because the second problem with the notion that everything happens for a reason is that it makes God responsible for everyone's actions. If God actually intended for everything to happen, then God's responsible for every terrible thing that happens in our world. It would mean that tragedies don't happen in spite of God's will, but because of it. If this way of thinking is fully true, then every rape, every murder, every act of child abuse, every war, every terrible storm or earthquake that claims people's lives, every child that dies of starvation, all of these are part of God's plan. In fact, I saw a meme. I didn't want to put it up because it bothered me so much I didn't want it to bother you, but I'll tell you about it. It was a a guy sitting in a a field, a beautiful field with rainbows over his head, and it said, everything happens for a reason. And it was a a picture of a little kid in Africa starving, starving to death, and he just said, really? This is the awful truth that you got to confront when you buy fully into the half-truth that everything happens for a divinely ordained reason. I remember sitting with my friend at that bar that one day, because I really, I try my best to love God, and I just remember sitting there when they were telling him, well, you know, it was God's, it was God's will, and I just wanted to stand up and go, no, don't put that, don't put that on my God. The memes we put up earlier actually portray two ends of the spectrum of belief when it comes to everything happens for a reason. The first is everything happens for a reason, and that reason is all me. It's my stupidity. It's my choices. Whatever happened, it's because I I did it. My choices, my decisions rule my world. Our collective choices, our collective decisions rule the whole world. This concept, which is at one side of the theological argument, is called deism. In its popular form, deism holds that God created all things, he set the laws of nature in motion, he gave humanity dominion over the earth, and he stepped away and put the whole machine on autopilot. God created the watch, he wound it up, and he lets it tick. Deism essentially states God is not at work in our world. God is not at work in your lives. God just put everything, started everything up, and now he's just off and he's uninterested. What happens is all up to us. Now, on the opposite end of deism is another theological thought process called fatalism. A fatalist thinks, well, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. Whatever will be, will be. We're powerless to change it. If you are a committed fatalist, there's no reason to ever wear your seatbelt. Why would you bother? If you're going to die in a car accident, you'll die. If you weren't meant to die, you won't. If you take a fatalistic view, why would you go to the gym? Why would you eat healthy? It's bacon three times a day for all of us. It won't matter how much you exercise. Diagnosed with cancer, if you're a fatalist, well, don't waste any time going to see an oncologist. In fact, seeking treatment is just resisting God's will for you. It was God, after all, who gave you the cancer in the first place. In fact, the entire medical profession, instead of being God's instruments of healing, they're just working against God's plans for you. We think this way a lot. I was talking to my mom this week. She has COPD, very bad, really bad. My mom struggles. I'd love for you to pray for her. She can't move more than five feet without really struggling to take a breath. And so I said to her about this whole coronavirus thing, remembering that there are four people with it in a state of nine million people. I said, hey, just if this thing does take off, you're going to need to stay home because you, you, know, you really would be subject to, to a bad outcome here. And you know what she said to me? Oh, Johnny. Oh, by the way, hi, Mom. Um, Johnny, if I meant to die, I'll die. I'm like, well, Mom, why don't you just go roll around in traffic if that's like the thought process, right? But this is what, what we think sometimes. 
Now, let me show you where this saying comes from, okay? Because I think we can kind of pick at this a little bit and start to understand things in a new way. Because this is actually, I find this fascinating. Stick with it. It gets tied to what Paul wrote to the church in Rome in the eighth chapter of, of his letter to that church. He, explicit, he explained, right after he talked about how we're all subject to frustration, we're all subject to decay, we're all experiencing kind of the fallout of the fall in our lives. Sometimes things aren't fair. Sometimes things seem hard. Sometimes things are brutal. It was to people that were experiencing that that Paul said this, and we know. He, said, he didn't say we wonder or we ponder or we guess, and we know. This was a man who suffered a tremendous amount. Some of you know Paul's story. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten. He's been in prison. But he goes, but, but here's what I know. We know this, that in all things, and you know what that means, people? It means that all things, it means everything that happens, good things and bad things, because guess what? Followers of Jesus experience all things, not just good things. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. That's the verse people often use and cite to defend everything happens for a reason, but that is not what Paul said. What he said was the things that are happening, the things that are happening, all things, that even in those cruddy things, even in those times where we're groaning from the pain of those things, God is at work, and He is working those things out for the good of those who love Him. That's a big difference. Now, there is huge assurance for us if this is true. If you really believe this, I mean, you, could ju you can rest. No matter what is going on, and as much as I don't like it right now, as much as I'm moaning, as much as, as much as I'm subject to decay, while the world is spinning out of control around me, it's not really. Because over the long term, and maybe I can't see it now, but over the long term, God is working things out for my good. But it doesn't fully answer the question. Because if God will use these things for our good, did he cause all these things for our good? Or was it something I did? Or is he just inflicting them on me for something I did? Is he inflicting it on the world for something we did? You can see where this leads, by the way. Wait till we find out that guy in China that started all of this. <laughs> Paul continues. And at one level, he makes things a little more confusing. Here's what he said to, to that church. He said, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Predestined and called. Predestined and called. Do you want to know why the Presbyterian church is on one side of the street and the Methodist church is on the other side of the street? Predestined and called. Huge, millennial-long debates over what this means. Because predestined and called would seem to indicate that the fatalists are right. It doesn't matter what I do. It's all been laid out already. It's all been preordained. God micromanages everything. He's controlling everything right down to the minutest detail. He's choosing the winners and the losers. He's controlling all the events. And there are a lot of other scriptures which seem to indicate the same thing. And I am not shying away from those scriptures. Yet, yet, the scriptures also replete with stories and parables regarding free will and choices. Jesus is always talking about 
what, we, what, what to do, you know. In the absence of the king, a landowner once went away. You see it in the Old Testament, you see it in the New. Moses said on God's behalf to the Israelites, this day I call the heavens and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now, choose life so that you and your children may live. Now you get to choose. Choose life. Paul, who used the words predestined and called, also wrote this to the Galatians, another church. He said, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh is going to reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. A man reaps what he sows, even in regards to salvation. Man has a choice. So which is it? Is everything predestined and ordained, or does what I do matter? Because if it's all predestined, well, then people, may I suggest we eat, drink, and be merry, because how I live doesn't matter, or does it? Do I have free will and my choices matter? And the future is open. The possibilities are endless, or, or has something set the future, and it's fixed, and my, and my choices don't matter? What I've set up for you there is kind of a false duality, which is the one that you and I buy into all the time, because we look at this as an either or. Either everything happens for a reason or nothing happens for a reason. It's either controlled or random, either or. Listen now, this is so important. The story of God throughout the whole of the Scripture that is never God's story, either or. As I showed you from the verses before, you're free to do whatever it is you want. And you need to know you and you alone are responsible for your choices. And those choices have consequences in your life. And your choices have consequences in other people's lives. And you will one day, apart from Christ, be held accountable for each of your choices. And so is this. This is also true. Everything that happens as a result of your choices and free will is working out exactly as God planned it to. What you wind up choosing to do winds up filling out the plan he wants. Now, it's hard to put that together, but I'm going to show you why you know it's true in your life. See, this is not just a New Testament concept either. The writer of Proverbs, which is an ancient book of wisdom in the Old Testament, he understood it. Here's what he wrote. He said, to humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Of course, to you belongs the plans of your heart. You are free to do with your plans what you want. But the outworking of those plans, the outworking of those choices, the results of those things belong to God. Tim Keller, who handles this better than I've seen anybody handle it, he says this, why does it have to be either or? Can't God actually fix things and work them out, but yet not violate your free will and choices? Why couldn't God do that? Well, you would say, well, I can't imagine how I could do that. Well, of course you can't because you're underqualified for this job. You're not God. 
Theologian J.I. Packer describes it this way in his work, Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility. You see if you, you pursue this, how, how important this is. Here's what he wrote. He said that this discussion is representative of an antinomy. An antinomy is an appearance of a contradiction between conclusions which seems equally logical, reasonable, or necessary. And to explain it, now I know I'm getting a little wonky here, just stick with me through this, okay, for a second. To explain it, he uses the example of light. Some of you might have seen the slit experiment with light. It's actually quite fascinating. Here's what Packer wrote. Modern physics faces an antinomy in the sense of its study of light. There is cogent evidence to show that light consists of waves, but there is equally cogent evidence to show that it consists of particles. It is not apparent how light can be both waves and particles, but the evidence is there. And so neither view can be ruled out in favor of the other. Neither, however, can be reduced to the other or explained in terms of the other. The two seemingly incompatible positions have to be held together. They both have to be treated as true. Such a necessity scandalizes our tiny minds, no doubt. But there is no help for, but there is no help for it if we are to be loyal to the facts. If you want to understand and work with light, and by the way, isn't it interesting that God is light? If you want to understand and work with light, you've got to understand this truth. There is an apparent contradiction there, but it is obviously not a contradiction. We just don't have the knowledge to figure it out yet. Same thing here, and so it is with God. My ways are not your ways. On one hand, God is setting things the way he wants them to be despite our choices. Not, excuse me, not despite our choices, but through our choices. You can see this. Keller points out a great example of it. He, he tells the story of Paul. The, the, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the, those, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each wrote a gospel telling the story of Jesus. And then after that, Luke records what happens in the early church once the church gets started. Now, Paul is causing a lot of problems. And so he's getting sent back to Rome for trial, right? So he's going to get put on trial in Rome, and he's getting put on a ship from Crete to go back to Rome to face trial. Well, Paul has a premonition that this ship is going to wreck and it's going to be a disaster. So he goes to the guys and goes, gentlemen, even though I know you're my captors, I have a premonition we shouldn't get on this ship because this ship is going to be, is going to be shipwrecked. They, of course, don't listen to him, and they all get on the ship. Storm kicks up. People start getting afraid. Paul has another vision, and he comes down and he shares it with those that are his captors. Here's what he said on the ship in the midst of the storm. Man, he said, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete, and then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. This sounds like my mother every time she talked to me in high school. <laughs> but now, if you just would have listened to me, none of this would have happened. But now, I urge you to take courage because not one of you will be lost. Not one of you. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I serve stood beside me and said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of everybody on this ship, of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that he'll make it happen just as he told me. Paul sees this as divine, as a word from God, as a prophecy. To Paul, it is a certainty. It is a prophetic word. He's speaking on God's behalf. He is totally certain of God's plan. But watch what happens. Because the guys do get afraid. And they don't trust in God. They don't listen to what Paul says. And so they start to come up with a plan about how to get off the ship. In an attempt to escape from the ship, 
the sailors let the lifeboat down in the sea. They were pretending they were just going to lower some anchors from the bow. And then Paul said to the centurion in the shoulders, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Wait a minute. I thought God said everyone's going to be saved. Now you're saying that everyone is not going to be saved, that their choices matter. If you believe no one's going to die, that's the plan of God, then just let them get off the boat. But Paul has a biblical understanding of this, that our plans and our choices matter, but they don't determine God's ultimate future. Because they matter, he's not passive. He doesn't doesn't just go, guys, do whatever you want. Your choices don't matter. But he's also also not kind of paralyzed by fear over choices. Here's what I mean by that. If you believe 100% that it's all up to you, that your choices and others' choices are the only things that matter in this world. That's pretty paralyzing. Because if all that is at work in your life is your choices, if everything comes down to what you do, you better be really careful about the choices you make. Like, you better be really, really careful. Every choice you make every day, it has literally, because of the web, thousands of consequences. From the breakfast cereal you chose to eat to the bug you killed on the window. They all ripple endlessly through time with no governor. And if you start to think about all the things that could happen to you on any given day because of your choices, you can wind up so paralyzed you're not even going to get out of bed in the morning. Every choice you make changes everything. That can be pretty scary. Here's what the Scripture says. The Scriptures teach you are responsible for your free choices, but God is in charge of our future, and He overrules everything in some sense so that you can do your best, and then you can relax and trust in the sovereignty of God. That's what Paul said. That's what Paul meant when he says, everything is working together for the good of those who love God. Now, you know this because you can see it in your lives, in the rearview mirror. Why, what am I doing as the pastor of this church? Many of you asking that right now. But the reality is, I, I felt like God wanted me to be in ministry when I was 21 years old, but I was, I was too, it didn't make any sense to me. I didn't, I mean, I didn't want to be a pastor and I had a lot of plans for my life, so I actually filled out seminary applications and all that, and I never sent them in. That was my choice. What am I doing here? Well, it's funny, because before I had this job, I had a private equity job that where I owned a private equity company, which is ridiculous, because A, I'm underqualified for it, B, I don't have the education for it, and C, I didn't have any money, so how did I own a private equity company? Well, what happened was I was working in a bank where some guy that I had never met before came up to me and said, hey, are you John Eisman? And I said, yeah, and he goes, well, you know, I've heard a lot about you, and we're starting a private equity group here in the bank, and we only need two guys, actually, we only need one guy, and we'd like you to be the guy. I never met this guy before. So I wind up taking that private equity job, which gets sold, the company gets sold three times. We wind up buying it, not with my money, but with money we raised from nobody I met, somebody, the other guys met him. And then, because I had time on my hands, I was asked to come onto staff here at Mendham, where I've been for the last 15 years. But what's even more interesting than that is, the only reason I was at that bank to get asked to be in the private equity job was I had gotten a job in banking. But the problem was, I was much like many of your senior kids. When I was in college at Rutgers in 1989, it got to be around April or May, and it started to occur to me, I should probably get a job. (laughs) Never had occurred to me before. I was usually thinking about what I was going to do Thursday. 
And so my father was like, are you doing anything about getting a job? And I'm like, huh, I should probably look into this. So I called career services. And they laughed at me. They said, the job fairs were a year ago, dude. Like, it's all over. We're working with juniors and sophomores now. Like, you're in trouble, man. So I didn't know what to do, and my dad wasn't happy, so I just started randomly calling banks, because my dad was in banking. So I'm like, I'll call banks. And so I called the biggest bank in the state at the time, First Fidelity Bank, and I called and I said, hey, I'm, you know, my name is John Eisman. I'm a senior at Rutgers University. And they laughed at me. And they said, dude, you're so, you, all of this is done. All the interviews are set. It's too late. Guy calls me back just a short time later, and he goes, crazy story. One of the, one of the guys that was going to take, that has an interview, he was on a ski vacation with his buddies this week, and he fell and broke his leg. He can't take the interview. It's tomorrow. Would you like it? In one way or another, you're sitting here this morning, many of you, because some poor slob in 1989 broke his leg on the side of Camelback. <laughs> Do you see what God is up to? You have those stories in your life where your choices and God's sovereignty somehow, and I can't fully explain it, but somehow they came together for your good. All things work together for the good of those who love God. Stop and reflect on those things. You can be assured, no matter what is happening in your life, no matter how out of control things might be, I know coronavirus is going to kill us all, but I'm telling you, God is still in control. But your choices matter. They still matter. Honestly, that promise, interestingly enough, was not written to everyone. All things work together for the good of those who love God. That's your choice. You have to choose where you stand in relationship to God. Do you have a relationship with God that is available, made available to you lovingly through Jesus Christ? Listen, you can see in that choice, you want to see the antinomy at work again? You have a choice whether to give your life to Christ. It is your choice, your free will. You can decide if you want to give your life to Christ. That's your choice. You see Jesus speak of it oftenly, but then you also hear Jesus say things like this. You did not choose me, I chose you. No man can come to me except the Father draw him. Well, which one is true? Both. This is likely why you're here this morning. Because the Father has been wooing you, seeking you, calling you. But it's your choice. You have free will and yet God is sovereign. And here's why. I'm going to conclude with this thought. Because at the center of the universe is God which means at the center of the universe is love. God is love, and he created you as an extension to extend that love and community that exists at the center of the universe in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit in that holy dance. You were invited to dance. All of that is yours, but for love to exist, so must free will. Love that is mandated or fixed or required or certain is no love at all. Your choice matters. If you think about it, everything happens for a reason, and that reason often is our free will, which put in another way of thinking is this. Everything happens for a reason, and you know what that reason is? Hard to believe it, especially in the difficult circumstances. That reason is love. 
because it's what love dictates and requires. And this love isn't merely sentimental. It's not just abstract. God demonstrates his love for you in this, that while you were yet sinners, making bad decisions, messing things up, Christ died for you. Every time the world seems uncertain or random or out of control, every time fear creeps in, every time you make a bad choice and you face very real consequences because your choices matter, you have personal responsibility for life, but you can rest in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love for us in this. Knowing this truth is what Paul allows Paul to finish his discussion on this topic this way. He, goes, he asks a simple question. What then should we say in response to this? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Remember the all things? Here he defines them. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. No. In all of those things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I'm convinced, he says, that neither death nor life, angels or demons, the present or the future, any powers, neither height nor depth, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, please understand, your choices matter. Please be very careful about attributing to God things that he permitted, but the, that he did not do. Please understand that at the center of the universe sits love, which both uses your free will choices and is sovereign and ordains the very ends of your days. In Anne Voskamp's book, 1,000 Giants, she shares her journey to understand the senseless death of her sister, who was a two-year-old who was crushed by a truck. In the end, she concludes that the primary issue is whether we trust God's character. Is he really just? Is he really loving? Here's her conclusion. I'm going to end with this. She said, here's what I decided, that God gave us Jesus. If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything we need? If trust must be earned, Hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark of the raw wounds, with the thorns pressed into his brow, with your name on his cracked lips? How will he not graciously give us all things he deems best and right? He's already given the incomprehensible. Does everything happen for a reason? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. But at the center of the universe sits love. Let's stand and close the song.